This is Father McConville, back to talk about opera. In my first podcast, I discussed Francis Poulenc's The Dialogue of the Carmelites. In that opera, we saw how the main character, Blanche de la Force, overcame her fear of, well, just about everything, and joined her sisters in the Carmelite order upon the scaffold awaiting the guillotine. Poulenc's opera offers us a musical reflection on facing our fears and learning to trust in God's providence. Jules Massenet's Thais offers a very different message. Here we see the two main characters, Athanael and Thais, heading on opposite pathways. Athanael is a Cenobite monk living in the Egyptian desert near the city of Alexandria. Thais is a courtesan living in Alexandria. For those of you who do not know what a courtesan is, first, good for you. Second, let's just say she was a uh, high-end practitioner of the oldest profession. Uh, what is more, she was a priestess of the goddess Venus. In short, Thais was a pretty awful public sinner by Christian standards, and Athanael decides it's up to him to save her from eternal damnation. And this is where his problems begin. However, before we dive too deeply into these troubled waters, let's take a look at Massenet and the source material he used to write Thais. Jules Massenet lived from 1842 to 1912. He was a professor of music at the Paris Conservatory and influenced many French composers of the day. Uh, he liked religious themes mostly because they offered highly dramatic material for his compositions. Uh, Massenet was known for his strong work ethic. Uh, he got up in the morning and started composing at 4.30. His decision to compose Thais uh, reflects his love for the dramatic. Uh, it also shows some of the skepticism directed toward the church that was alive in France at the time. I think of, for example, some of Victor Hugo's stories, like The Hunchback of Notre Dame or um, Alexander Dumas' The Three Musketeers, which portray church officials in a poor light. In this case, Thais was based upon a novel of the same name, written by Anatole France, Monsieur Francis story portrays his monk, Paphnutius, as a hypocrite whose fanatical and unbending religious views ultimately lead him to renounce his faith. Well, for our purposes, we can consider the story as a cautionary tale about pride. We can also consider Thais' character arc as a message for hope, conversion, and God's mercy. Apparently, uh, there is a Saint Thais, who tradition says lived in Egypt in the 4th century AD and was formerly a courtesan, but became a nun. There's a lot of conjecture about her actual existence, but this tradition served as the inspiration for Anatole's, uh, Anatole France and others. So the opera begins with the desert monks getting ready for supper. There are 12 of them under the leadership of the abbot Palemon, uh, who may represent Jesus and the apostles. Um, I suppose in any event, uh, Athanael has been away from the community and the other monks, and wondering, and they're wondering what happened to him. He arrives and tells Palemon that he's been remembering his younger days before becoming a monk when he lived in Alexandria. 
He laments the wickedness of the city and blames it all on Thais, a courtesan and priestess of Venus. Even Athanael fell under her spell when he was younger, but now he knows better. Right. Athanael has been having visions of her, and he has decided that he will win her soul for God. Palemon doesn't like the sounds of this and warns Athanoel to steer clear of Alexandria and its wicked denizens. Of course, if Athanoel had listened to Palemon, he'd have stayed at home and there would be no story to tell. But no, Athanoel knows better and, praying for divine protection, heads off, as they say, to beard the lion in his lair, who in this case is a lioness and doesn't have a beard. But never mind. I'm reminded of a little poem written by Alexander Pope. Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but be seen. Yet, seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. In this case, Athanael appears to be filled with genuine religious zeal, but he tips his hand a little when he admits uh, he's been ruminating on his profligate past. It's a common misstep among people recovering from addiction to believe they can return to a temperate use of their chemical of choice. The general consensus is that a pickle cannot go back to being a cucumber. In this case, Athanuel believes that now he has accepted the way of the Desert Fathers, self-denial, bodily mortification, and all the rest. He can plop himself down right in the middle of the sinful society he enjoyed once upon a time. But this is the way with new converts. They're happy and excited about what they have discovered and are anxious to carry their newly acquired knowledge back to the old gang. Looks like Palemon, like Yoda, is warning Athanoel not to go off converting people before he's been fully converted himself. Vice's frightful mean has not proven to be frightful enough for Athanoel. So, He heads off to Alexandria and arrives at the home of his friend from the old days, Nicias. Nicias is still steeped in the life of sensuality and licentiousness. Athanuel, however, uh, arrives, and one of his servants, Nicias' servants, thinks he's a beggar, tries to send him away. His old friend recognizes him, and the two catch up on life. The monk tells his friend uh, that he's looking for Thais. Nicias tells him that he's in luck. She's been in his employment, and today is his last day with her. Athanuel is anxious to confront Thais, but Nicias reminds his friend that she is a priestess of Venus. Nicias warns, have a care about Venus, most powerful of the goddesses. She will be avenged on you. Athanuel dismisses this warning and says, God will protect his own. This proves to be a bit of a prophecy. Athanuel has all the bucklarnen of a disciple, but he seems to be a little light in the humility department. His offhand response to Nicias reminds me of how Satan tried to tempt Jesus. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up on their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone." Of course, our Lord said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. 
Nicias orders uh, two servants to get Athanuel into some proper party clothes. These two girls giggle as they dress him with a fine robe, golden sandals, and all sorts of jewelry. Suddenly, we hear a crowd approaching. Thais, who is also a public performer, has just finished her show and is coming to Nicias' house for, with her admirers. Uh, in the novel, the guests engage in a philosophical discussion, a la Plato, about religion. The guests' cavalier disregard for Christianity gets Paphnutius riled up. That's the character in the novel. In the opera, Athanuel pays no attention to the conversation, but instead launches into Thais. He tells her that he plans to convert her from her wicked ways. Of course, she scoffs at him. He tells her, I will go into your own palace and bring you salvation, and I shall conquer hell, even in triumphing over you. Be careful, Athanuel, I'm thinking, he who highest soars, farthest falls. In Act 2, we find Thais at home, looking at herself in a mirror, tired of living the high life. She uh, knows that she is beautiful, but she also knows her beauty cannot last forever. So she asks Venus to preserve her beauty. This is the famous mirror aria. <laughs> This recording is from a performance starring Renee Fleming. It's on YouTube, and uh, you can find it if you search Air du Miroir. That's air, like what we breathe, D-U-D-M-I-R-O-I-R, Air du Miroir. Renee Fleming, by the way, uh, made her big debut um, as the title character in Dvorak's Rizalka, uh, which has a plot very similar to The Little Mermaid. Uh, Ms. Fleming has one of those rare voices that can handle the more demanding soprano roles, like Thais. Uh, after this aria, Athanuel, Athanuel arrives, and the two of them begin a battle for Thais' soul. Athanuel's language in this duet sounds like the kind Romeo would sing to Juliet. That is, he sounds very passionate and speaks to Thais of his love for her. She mistakes his words for simple wooing and warns, Though your praises are high, yet your pride mounts still higher, presumptuous man. Beware of loving me. This is the third time Athanuel's been warned about Thais, this time by Thais herself. Uh, he tries to set her right and explains, I love you, Thais, but I love you not as you apprehend. I love you in spirit and in truth. I promise far more than unholy delights and dreams that last but for a night. And this happiness which I offer to you will never know an end. Once again, is it just me or does Athanuel sound like he's courting Thais? In fact, she's asking the same question. And each sings to his or her respective god, Thais to Venus, Athanuel to the Almighty, to defend them from the inner conflict each of them is feeling. 
Just when Tai seems to be giving in, we hear Nicias wandering around outside, singing about having one more opportunity with his former courtesan. For Thais, the needle swings violently away from Athanuel as she declares, Thais I remain, Thais the courtesan. I believe in naught and wish for nothing more. Nor him, nor you, nor your god. However, Thais thinks better of this and apparently undergoes a huge conversion. I say apparently because there is no more dialogue. Instead, at this point in the opera, we're presented with a lovely bit of orchestral writing, the meditation. It's a violin solo meant to fill in the gap between what we've just heard and Tice's wholehearted decision to follow Athanuel back to the desert, where she will enter a convent and do penance for all her years of profligacy. This is one of the great things about opera. Timelines and events can get compressed or even eliminated, with only a few bars of music to suggest what we've missed. Sadly, the opposite is true, too. For example, Puccini makes us wait along with Madame Butterfly for Pinkerton's return as we listen to all 20 minutes of the humming chorus. Okay, once again, I'm exaggerating, but only a little. Um, The meditation gets a lot of use as an encore piece uh, at concerts and weddings. You get the idea. So, it, uh, I'll close this talk, in fact, today with a uh, performance of the meditation, which was an encore piece performed by Clara Jumi Kang and the Seoul Philharmonic Orchestra. But back to the opera. Athanuel explains to Thais that she must destroy everything connected with her dishonorable life. She holds on to a little statue of Cupid, Eros. She hopes she can bring with her to the convent. Athanuel smashes the statue and, for good measure, has Thais set fire to her palace. Nicias arrives with his friends, looking to enjoy a few more hours of revelry with Thais. At this point in the opera, Massenet gives us the ballet which was expected to occur at about this point in every French opera. Richard Wagner, who, truth be told, was not French, premiered his opera Tannhäuser in Paris, and although he hadn't planned for one, had to write a ballet into it because the Parisians demanded it. Once he got back to Bayreuth, he he cut it out. Anyway, uh, this ballet holds up the action long enough for Thais's palace to catch fire and to make the crowd upset that Athanuel is taking their favorite hostess away from them. The crowd begins throwing stones at Athanuel, and Nicias, in an act of kindness towards his old friend, throws a bunch of money at the crowd. This succeeds in distracting them long enough for our hero and heroine to exit stage left. Act 3 sees the couple trudging through the desert towards the convent of the White Sisters who will look after Thais. She's tired and thirsty, but Athanuel tells her she has a lot of penance to do to make up for all her past misadventures. However, he relents and offers her some refreshment at an oasis. 
This tender moment knocks the stars out of Athanuel's eyes. He's falling in love with her. No, not the like a sister in the Lord kind of love, but the unholy delights and dreams that last but a night kind of love. Just then, though, the white sisters arrive. We hear them in the distance singing the Lord's Prayer, and when they arrive, they're just getting to the etne nos in ducas in tentationem sed libera nos amalo, that is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, to which Athanuel answers, Amen. Amen indeed, good buddy, you're going to need it. As the sisters lead Thais away, Athanael repeats over and over, I shall see her no more, I shall see her no more. By now we should know that whenever a character in an opera sings over and over, I shall see her no more, no, he's going to be seeing her more. Back at the Cenobite community, we find that Athanuel has spent the last month in prayer and fasting. Guess what? He's been tormented by thoughts of Thais. In fact, he tells Palaemon, remember Palaemon? Remember he's the abbot of the community of monks who told Athanuel to stay away from Alexandria? Anyways, he tells Palaemon uh, that he is tormented by visions of Thais. Palaemon says, I told you so, which is A, not very helpful at this point, and B, he shouldn't be so quick to shift the blame. He could have used his abbot powers to order Athanuel to stay home, but no. So Athanuel goes to sleep and has a dream about Thais. By this point, our lad is totally head over heels for her, and in the vision, it's revealed that she is about to die. Athanuel exclaims, Thais is to die, then why should heaven exist, and mankind, and the light, to what end the universe? Once more to see her, she is mine. Once again, we are reminded about why the church warns us against playing with sin. Like fire, it will burn us. It really isn't too great of a mystery. When we develop an interest in something sinful, it's because we find something pleasurable in it. Rather than seeing evil as it truly is, we judge it fair and desirable. Oh, we know we should run away from it, but I've got this. Those three words should tip us off that we don't got this. The fact that we're willing to play with sin means we've developed a desire for it. Athanuel may have been very sincere in his desire to convert Thais, but at this point, it's fair to wonder if his zeal was just an excuse to gain access to her. Sadly, uh, that is another tool in temptation's arsenal. We justify, rationalize, and excuse our sinful behavior. In this case, Athanuel uh, opens himself up to temptation in the name of bringing a great sinner to God. Well, buddy, you chose to be a desert hermit, presumably an answer to God's call, and so you should have stayed in the desert, just like uh, your fellow uh, Palaemon told you to. So, Athanuel rushes to Thais' side and declares his love for her. She, dying, has her gaze fixed on the glory of heaven. Athanuel is infuriated, one, by the fact Thais is dying, and two, by the fact she is more interested in eternal life with God than she is about Athanuel. He exclaims, no, not heaven, it exists not. Nothing is true but life and passion in the human. I love you. At this moment, Thais dies blissfully, looking upward rapturously towards heaven. Athanuel collapses on the ground in despair. The end. 
In the novel, the sisters hear him blaspheming, and they cry out, A vampire, a vampire, and run away from him. The last line of the novel says, He had become so repulsive that, passing his hand over his face, he felt his own hideousness. Oof. Massenet originally wanted the opera to end as the novel did. I, for one, am grateful that he didn't. Anyway, I think a chorus of nuns running around singing, Un vampire, un vampire, uh, would have looked and sounded pretty silly. The theological themes that turn up in this opera, whether Massenet or his librettist or the original author intended them to, are worthy of further reflection. Athanuel may have been motivated by true and noble sentiments, His undoing was his pride. First, he placed the conversion of Thais completely on his own shoulders. I will win her soul for God. Second, he does not listen to prudent counsel when it's offered to him by three separate individuals. Yeah, you don't know me. You don't know how motivated I am. You don't know how much God is on my side. Third, the devil has an easy enough time tempting us without us giving him more ammunition. I'll show you. I'll go back to the very place I spent my ill-spent youth. Fourth, Athanuel, although he makes like he's trusting in God, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God, doesn't get himself out of the situation as soon as he realizes he's in trouble. God, veil her from my eyes. I'm still going to look at her, but veil her from my eyes. Fifth, like Adam and Eve in the garden after eating the forbidden fruit, he hides. He tells Palemon about his torments, but he doesn't look for answers. Instead, he fixates on the problem. In the final analysis for me, Athanuel offers a great example of a sort of superficial surrender to God, more of an intellectual assent than a wholehearted handing over of one's life. Thais' conversion uh, from her former way of life is equally fascinating for me. When we first met her, she was a self-assured and life of the party. She had spent Nicias out of most of his property, and she delights in her beauty. In Act 2, though, we discover that all is not beer and skittles with Thais. She knows that she will grow old and her beauty will fade. She hopes her devotion to Venus will preserve her, but deep down, it appears that she's not convinced of this. Athanuel offers her an alternative, eternal life with God. Nicias' arrival forces the issue, and Thais has both options placed on the table. During the meditation, she makes up her mind to follow Athanuel. We aren't privileged to witness fully her inner deliberation, but she seems determined to go to the convent. I also appreciate how she wanted to bring her little statue of Cupid with her. As is often the case, when we become convinced that we must change our ways, we still try to justify hanging on to a little piece of the old days. Thais tries to justify keeping the statue. She says, There is nothing I would keep from my past except this ivory image, this child, a rare antique, exquisite work. It's Eros, and it is love. Oh, consider, my father, can we treat him so cruelly, poor little child? When Athanuel finds out Nicias gave the statue to her, he smashes it on the ground. Was he casting down a pagan idol or destroying a keepsake given by a rival? In either case, Thais tries to justify keeping it because Eros is a god of love and, after all, isn't love what the true god is all about. 
Eh, nice try, Thais, but thou shalt not have strange gods before me, saith the Lord. Well, to her credit, Thais doesn't seem to mind having her idol destroyed. Yes, the bottom line for me is that A, even the seemingly worst sinner is capable of receiving and being touched by God's grace, and B, God can use even the seemingly worst evangelist for his purposes. Well, that's enough for now. I hope you've enjoyed this look at Thai East through a Catholic lens. May God bless you and fill your meditations with thoughts of his love and mercy. Mm-hmm.